0: Welcome everyone to the Daily Kofefi on Unsafe Space. Today is Thursday, August 29th, 2019. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I'm not joined by the bad Mama Jamma today. She is not feeling well, but in her honor, I wore a hat. So that's that's the best you're gonna get, is you're gonna get me in a hat. But let's just dive into it today. Uh I'd like to walk through this article that I saw in the New York Times a couple of days ago because it's really telling of the times that we're in and it's fascinating to see how the legacy media thinks of themselves. The title of this article is Trump allies target journalists over coverage deemed hostile to White House. Now, just in just in the headline there's a lot packed in there, right? It's Trump allies that's meant to be an aspersion, that they're allies of Trump. They're targeting journalists. Targeting is something you do when you shoot people or shoot at them or attack them in some way. So right away, we're talking about uh, Orange Man Army attacking. Now, journalists, they think is an upstanding word. That's their their badge is journalist. So they think that calling themselves journalist is good. Uh, maybe many of us look at the word journalist and go, "Good, I'm glad someone's targeting journalists," uh, but or so-called journalists uh, over over coverage deemed hostile to White House. Now, this is interesting. This is basically saying, "Oh, they're only they're only going after us not for any flaws that we have because we don't have flaws and we always report correctly and we're upstanding journalists. They're just attacking us because we're we're just so hard on Trump. We're so good at our job." So let's just read this article together. So a loose network of conservative operatives, again, (laughs) conservative operatives. So this, by the way, a conservative operative is just someone that disagrees with them. A loose network of conservative operatives allied with the White House is pursuing what they say Will be an aggressive operation to discredit news organizations deemed hostile to President Trump by publicly by publicizing damaging information about journalists. Now, this start, this starts off sounding kind of bad. I I read that first paragraph and I think, oh, are they are they blackmailing people? Are they they're just you know going after people who are reporting facts about the president in, in an unbiased way? That's how we're meant to think about this. But we see, let's keep reading, it is the latest step, oh, the latest step, so they're doing this a lot. It's the latest step in a long-running effort by Mr. Trump. Now, by the way, this is like journalism school 101. I did actually take some journalism classes when I was in college. <laughs> Mr. Trump, this is a, like, journalism 101, how to disparage someone as you you, you call them Mr. Trump instead of President Trump. You don't use their honorific title. You just say Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump is a uh, disrespectful way to refer to a president. So it is the latest step in a long-running effort by Mr. Trump and his allies to undercut the influence of legitimate news reporting. So again, we're legitimate. All they're trying to do. Is undercut our influence. Okay. Four people familiar with the operation described how they're not going to name the four people, probably, but maybe they will. Let's see. Four people familiar with the operation described how it works, asserting that it has compiled dossiers of potentially embarrassing social media posts and other public statements by hundreds of people who work at some of the country's most prominent news organizations. Now, wait a minute. This first paragraph made it seem like it's this operation to discredit them by publishing damaging information. This second paragraph says, oh, uh, these are just public statements, social media posts and other public statements. So that's an odd thing. They're claiming that this attack is an attack By showing people what you've said publicly? Okay. This group has already released information about journalists. Released information. What a weird thing to say about stuff that's public. (laughs) I've released your Twitter information. This group has released information about journalists at CNN, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, three outlets that have aggressively investigated, again, Mr. Trump, in response to reporting or commentary that the White House's allies consider unfair to Mr. Trump and his team or harmful to his re-election prospects. So, they think this is because they're such great, aggressive investigative reporters. Uh, Actually, what they've been doing is peddling Marussia for the last couple of years with basically no evidence. I mean... Pretty weak evidence. In fact, if they were actual investigative reporters, they would start asking pretty serious questions about where's Joseph Massoud? How did this how did this dossier get into the hands of uh, the FBI to be used in a FISA warrant? Um, what was paragraph one of the investigation that that kicked it all off? And why are none of the ties between the DNC and Fusion GPS and the Hillary Clinton campaign and these Russian operatives Why are they not being investigated, right? So you would ask those questions, but, of course, they did not. Operatives have closely examined more than a decade's worth of public posts and statements by journalists. The people familiar with the operation said, again, haven't mentioned who that is, only a fraction of what the network claims to have uncovered has been made public. It is all public to start with. What is this only a fraction? It's public information they're collecting. Only a fraction of it has been made public, what, again? On their website? On their Twitter account? With more to be disclosed as the 2020 election heats up. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> the research is said to extend to members of journalists' families who are active in politics. Well, I guess make active in politics is different than just their families. Uh, as well as liberal activists and other political opponents of the president. Yeah. Yeah. It is not possible to independently assess the claims about the quantity or potential significance of the material the pro trump network has assembled some involved in the operation have histories of bluster and exaggeration <gasps> no really i've you know it's a good thing we 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 have cnn and the new york times to fall back on for calm sane no bluster no exaggeration just calm sane reporting like telling us that Trump is running concentration camps for children at the border and then using photos from the Obama era as evidence? Or like constantly comparing the president to Hitler and calling his supporters deplorables and when that wasn't enough, just upgrading to racists? Or like letting an on-air guest seriously make the case that Trump is responsible for more deaths than Hitler and Stalin combined and then not bothering to challenge him whatsoever? Or like treating a salacious, unverified dossier funded by the Clinton campaign as if it's the Bible because it has the potential to damage Trump. Or like refusing to acknowledge that Trump has unequivocally condemned the white nationalists at Charlottesville multiple times. Or like pushing the lie that Trump mocked a reporter's disability. Or the lie that Trump said all Mexicans are rapists and murderers. Or like just the other day when Lawrence O'Donnell claimed that Russian oligarchs had co-signed loans for Trump Only to be forced to retract his accusation the very next day. Need I go on? Anyway, those willing to describe its techniques and goals may be trying to intimidate journalists or their employers. Well, actually, I think what they're trying to do is point out the fact that uh, you journalists don't deserve the halo over your head that you think you do. And I'm going to use, I'm using journalists in quotes. But the material publicized so far, while in some cases stripped of context or presented in misleading ways, has proved authentic, and much of it has been professionally harmful to its targets. Yes, yes, I can imagine it has. How about when you report on high school kids who stand there smiling at old men, old Native American men who are getting in their face for activism? And you report that they're hateful white supremacists or whatever you report, white nationalists, that, that they're the problem, that they're hateful for standing there, getting accosted. Think that was harmful to their reputation? What about when uh, Kyle Kashuv, the survivor of the Stoneman Douglas shooting, who you don't like, not David Hogg, but the other one. The one who doesn't want massive gun control what about when he was caught to have said something you know written something in a google document when he was younger that was i mean he's already he's still young but what, what how did you treat that you you lost your shit is the answer and you probably professionally harmed him certainly tried to it is clear from the cases to date that among the central players in the operation is arthur schwartz So they're going to try and vilify this. I I can't read this whole thing because, guys, it's... I mean, let's be honest. It's it's boring to just sit here and read this whole New York Time story because it's a fabrication. It's almost like it's this weird paranoia. It's watching someone who has no (laughs) self-awareness point at someone else and complain about all the things that they do um, and project them onto someone else. So they go on to vilify this guy, Arthur Schwartz. He's mean. He doesn't like us. He says... Uh, if the New York Times thinks this settles the matter, we can expose a few other their bigots, so they go on to complain that this is part of some anti journalism movement from from Trump, and this is a really dishonest thing they write right here they're talking about Trump, and they say journalism he said in a tweet last week is quote nothing more than an evil propaganda machine for the Democrat party. He did say that sort of, but there's a Caveat: There's a twist. Let's look at the twist. He put journalism in quotes. He put, quote, journalism has reached a new low in the history of our country. It is nothing more than an evil propaganda machine for the Democrat Party. He's right about that. He's right about that. So then they go on to complain that the operation has compiled social media posts from Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and stored images of the posts that can be publicized even if the users delete them. Oh my god. And uh this some of the stuff could potentially be fireable information on several hundred people. And they go here's Arthur Schwartz, here's the horrible the horrible Arthur Schwartz. So you know what this reminds me of? Is it reminds me of the media's and the, and the Hillary campaign's reaction to her emails and the, and the DNC's reaction to the Hillary emails. It's, it's reacting against the person who exposed your wrongdoing and vilifying them rather than taking the blame for your wrongdoing. So it's like you get caught doing something, and your reaction, instead of saying, oh, mea culpa, I got caught, what you do is you point to the person who caught you and you, you say, how dare you? How dare you have caught me? Right? This is kind of what they did with the Hillary Clinton emails. They're like, how dare Julian Assange release the emails? How? I can't believe that we were hacked. Even though I had my own private server in my bathroom in New York and didn't use any security protocols, although I was secretary of state. That's the mentality. The mentality is it's Everyone else's fault. It's not my fault for doing anything wrong. It's not my fault for being a hypocrite. It's not my fault for having said things on social media that are embarrassing or are fireable. It's their fault for showing you those things. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. It kind of makes sense, though. We'll talk about their psychology in a minute. So then they go on to admit in this article that they actually kind of have done the same thing, which is really funny to me. They admit here the liberal group Media Matters for America helped pioneer close scrutiny of public statements by conservative media personalities. And they talk about how they they do this sometimes. But but they say, well, when the other side does it, it doesn't, it doesn't count. Because we're we're journalists. We can do it, but when you do it, it's not okay. So then they say the conservative operative James O'Keefe has has twisted that concept. This is the concept of basically doing the exact same thing, (laughs) finding information about people who are politically relevant and publishing it, the conservative operative James O'Keefe has twisted that concept in ways inconsistent with traditional journalistic ethics. (laughs) I didn't know there were traditional journalistic ethics. Uh, Oh, I know. No, traditional journalistic ethics are getting a Pulitzer for reporting Soviet propaganda as fact. Uh, Anyway, sorry, with traditional journalistic ethics... Ethics using false identities, elaborate cover stories, and undercover videos to entrap journalists and publicize embarrassing statements, often in misleading ways to undercut the credibility of what he considers news media biased in favor of liberals. There's nothing in this paragraph that's actually bad. It's just the tone, right? That's called investigative journalism. When you go undercover or you use... Uh, you know, you use uh, elaborate cover stories to get yourself undercover. That's that's called investigative journalism. That's that's what you're supposed to do: is get to the truth of things and expose people who maybe are have an influence on things that they claim they're not doing, but that you find out that they are in private. That's what journalists do, guys. Well, maybe it's what they're supposed to do or what they used to do, but not what the New York Times does anymore. The truth is that journalism in the in the U.S. has gotten pretty lazy. They've been in an echo chamber by themselves for a long time prior to the Internet. It was hard to actually get facts on the ground, and so they had the infrastructure to go send reporters places and get facts and whatever. But they've gotten really, really lazy, and there's almost no better example of that. I mean, well, there's lots of examples of that, but if you watch the movie Hoaxed, there's countless examples and some of them you know you'll see them and you'll you'll remember oh yeah I remember when they did that like when they pushed the Iraq war when they the the yellow cake conspiracy to to push the Iraq war the idea that uh, Iraq was had yellow cake and they were gonna develop nuclear weapons there was a whole Pushed to, there was a whole false narrative about throwing babies in, in an orphanage on the floor that was all made up to get us into war. The media pushed all these narratives. But there's also a scene in there that I really like of when Cernovich is being interviewed on 60 Minutes. And they're talking about Cernovich's speculation that Hillary Clinton had some health issues. And he's talking to uh, Scott Pelly, is the the quote to journalist's name on 60 minutes. And Scott's explaining to Cernovich, no, 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 she she just had pneumonia or whatever it was. I think it was pneumonia, I don't remember. She just had pneumonia. She was she was fine, you know. We that that's what went on. It wasn't these other things that you think it could have been. And Mike asked a very simple question that any journalist should be able to answer. He said, Well, how do you know that? And actually Scott was able to answer it, but the answer was pretty lame. Scott said, well, because we talked to the Hillary campaign, and that's what they said. And then, Mike, that's a question that is the next follow-up question, which any journalist should ask. Why do you believe what the Hillary campaign says about their own candidate? Why would you believe that without doing any more investigation? Like, why would you believe that? Just face value. And Scott got flustered. He didn't have an answer. He didn't have an answer because the media doesn't do any sort of investigative journalism for people that they like they like hillary so hillary campaign says she's fine that's the narrative we push donald trump on the other hand they'll parade out a strings of armchair psychologists to pontificate about how trump might have this problem or that problem or he's a narcissist or he's a this or he's a that or he's got signs of x y and z or maybe he's unhealthy but the minute anyone asks those questions about Hillary, the media's answer was, well, no, we talked to the campaign. They said they said it wasn't that. I'm sure if you talked to the Trump campaign, they would say he was fine, too. So the, the media has just gotten lazy. And when someone like James O'Keefe steps up and starts doing actual investigative journalism, yeah, does he have a bias? Yes, of course. We know he's going after things. He's going after proven narrative. He's going after certain uh, companies and people and looking for exposure of certain things cause that he has he has something that he would like to demonstrate to the public he thinks there's a lot of bias I agree with him he thinks the the big tech and media are extremely biased to the left most rational people would totally agree with that he's trying to expose it trying to expose it is the journalism part journalists can have an agenda trying to expose something so long as they're still s- slaves to the truth but The New York Times doesn't even understand how, they don't even understand that what he's doing is actually journalism because they forgot how to do investigative journalism. They haven't done it. They didn't ask questions about the Iraq war. They didn't ask questions even about Hillary's health. They don't ask questions. So then they go on to give an example here. The operations tactics were on display last week, seemingly in response to two pieces in the Times that angered Mr. Trump's allies. The paper's editorial board published an editorial on Wednesday accusing Mr. Trump, again, Mr. Trump, of fomenting anti-Semitism. And the newsroom published a profile on Thursday morning of Ms. Grisham, the new White House press secretary, which included unflattering details about her employment history. So they're saying, look, we said that Trump had was fomenting anti-Semitism. We said some bad things. And then what happened? Well, after that, Breitbart News published an article that documented anti-Semitic and racist tweets written over a decade ago. they got to throw that in. It's a defense when it's their side, but it's not a defense when it's not their side. Written a decade ago by Tom wright Piersanti, who was in college at the time and has since become an editor on the Times politics desks. Oh, so wait a minute. So you can take anyone on the other side, find stuff that they've done in the past— Attribute it to that side, try and destroy their career. But when Breitbart publishes something about one of your editors, well, how dare dare they do that? How dare you point out our flaws? How dare you point out that we have people who've said things that are bad? Oh no, Donald Trump Jr. retweeted it. Senator Cruz talked about it. So now there's to see, look, all these right-wingers are are just, they're just trying to take down journalism. So then they go on to say how this guy apologized for his tweets, uh, they're offensive, I'm sorry, took them down, tries to you know, make an excuse. Now, these are excuses and an apology that the New York Times would never publish if it was someone on the other side who had been attacked who said, you know, it was in my youth, and I'm sorry, and I took it down. They would never give them the space in their paper to say, yeah, sorry, blah, 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 here's my explanation. They would never have a sympathetic ear for that person. They would just attack, because that's what they do. We know that. We see it. And And they try and say, oh, look, he was in his teens or early 20s when he made the statements. Yeah. So it didn't stop you. So they give a couple other examples here. They give an example of someone who used a gay slur, who was exposed, someone who another anti-semitic uh set of comments from someone else who apologized. Their excuse here, which they say in this article, is that well, when we do it, we only ta- attack people that are basically relevant in the news. We we attack people that are are relevant. We don't attack people who don't have power. I think they use the word power. We we don't attack people who don't have power. We only attack the the people who have power and are kind of relevant to the the national discussion. But of course, who determines what's relevant and who has the power? Well, that's their judgment. It's the New York Times that decides. Oh, this person is relevant and this person has power. To the rest of us, the New York Times has power and is relevant, and therefore. You are also subject to the same standards that you try to hold everyone else to. This is, you know, this is straight out of Saul Alinsky's playbook. This is the idea of like hold the other side to their standards, but you don't hold yourself to those standards. That's what we're seeing played out here. This reminds me of something. I, I think a lot of you might know this, but I spent a while in the startup world as an angel investor and also teaching founders how to start companies. And, and I ran a couple of accelerators and, and, and gave classes and lectures and did a lot of advising and startups. I still do a lot of startup advising. And although now it's mostly anonymous, because no one wants anyone to know that I'm helping them. <laughs> Fine with me. But one of the things I used to talk about <clears throat> was This psychological problem that founders have in terms of their identity and their self-esteem, what a lot of founders do, this is, bear with me, it's relevant, guys. What a lot of founders do is they will have an idea for a company. This is early stage stuff. They have an idea for a company, and they work on it for a while. They get excited about it, and psychologically, they marry the idea and their identity, They view themselves as the idea, as the company. And that has some positive results in that often they work harder and they're dedicated to it and they don't want to give up on it because it's their identity. But the negative aspects to it are they are they become irrationally defensive. And when your idea has holes poked in it or things aren't working out or someone criticizes it, instead of accepting that criticism and really trying to objectively look at whether that's a real flaw or a real problem or not, you dismiss it out of hand and you get very defensive because you you feel attacked. You feel like when anyone, anyone's attacking your idea for your company, you feel it personally. They're attacking you and you get very defensive about it. And it happens quite a lot. And it's unfortunate because in the startup world, typically the first idea that you start with doesn't work, even if that company ends up succeeding, which is also rare, usually the first company you start fails. But even if that company succeeds, it's typically not exactly the the idea that you envisioned when you started it. You you need feedback from the market and you learn that actually it's not exactly this, it needs to be that, and and things, things evolve and, and adjust. But they can't evolve and adjust if you are constantly just feeling attacked every time anyone criticizes you. This reminds me a little bit of how I think a lot of reporters who work for the legacy media, a lot of journalists, how they look at being a journalist. Their, I think their identity, their self-esteem is, is tied up in the idea that journalism is a noble profession, and they are heroes fighting a noble battle, and journalism is noble, but The world is changing a lot for these people. I already mentioned how the legacy media has become lazy. Now, their job fundamentally really has been to report facts and then perform analysis. But on the reporting facts, something interesting has happened with the rise of the internet. Two things. One is it becomes easy for people to report facts. You don't need a big news van and satellite uplink. You just need your phone in your pocket. So with the prevalence of recording devices, it's quite easy to get raw data about the world. So getting the raw data actually isn't as valuable as it used to be. So that dilutes the value of of traditional journalism immediately. But the other thing it does is it exposes how bad traditional journalism is at the facts in the first place. And you see this a lot where the media runs with some narrative that's actually proven wrong by a video that someone took on the ground. And the video goes viral on Twitter and it makes CNN look bad or whatever it is. Uh, The Covington kids I already already mentioned, they ran with this huge narrative and the videos came out and it turned out that there was totally a lie, totally bunk. And you ask yourself, well, 30 years ago, would we ever know that that was bunk or would we have just taken them for their word? Because those were the facts that we were being given. There's something called the Gelman Effect which I think was coined by Michael Creighton, of all people. I'm not sure, so don't quote me on that. But the Gelman effect is this, this sort of amnesia that people have. when, If you know a subject really well, I know a lot of us have, have specialized expertise, and I remember at one point in my career, I was deep in the Blu-ray HD DVD battle. I don't know if you remember that, but I was deep in that battle. And... You know, spend a lot of time in Japan at the at the meetings and talking to the execs there, and I would read about it in the Hollywood Reporter or um, Wall Street Journal, wherever. I would read about the format war, as they called it, and I would notice that they got a lot of their facts wrong. Often they had reversed cause and effect. They didn't know what was going on. It was it was utter trash it was just wrong wrong and the gelman effect is this idea that you can know something deeply and you read it in the paper and you see how wrong it is you see that they get everything wrong but then you turn the page or i guess nowadays click to the next article and forget that what you just saw was an example of journalists getting everything wrong so you click to that next article about something you don't know about, maybe it's about Palestine, maybe it's about fracking, it doesn't matter what it is, you're not an expert, and you read it and you assume that that article, that one is good. It was just the one that you knew about that was bad. So with the rise of the internet and the prevalence of all this source material available to the public, not only it does it dilute the value of that raw source material, it also exposes the failings of the media to get the facts right. And perhaps the Gelman effect will be less and less prevalent over time because people will get used to the idea. And I think that is happening. People are getting used to the idea that actually the media is not very good at this. The mainstream media has not been very good at this. And so once you know the media is not very good at getting the facts right, you can't really trust their analysis on anything because their analysis is based on flawed facts, likely. You, they can't even get the facts right. So at that point, there's not really a lot of reason to pay attention to the to legacy media. That doesn't mean that there's no role for journalism. There is, but what needs to happen is a transformation in the industry, and these people just aren't ready for it, and this is not abnormal. This is a normal thing that happens in, in business cycles. So whenever a, whenever there's revolutionary technology that comes along, you typically have large legacy players who are using or, you know, building or selling the old technology. And the writing's kind of on the wall, right? They know the horse and bug is going to go away, right? Those buggy whips are going to not be valuable anymore. But right now, they've still got a little bit of a cash cow. They're still making money selling their buggy whips. And they have a choice to make. And that choice is generally, do I use my profits from this legacy business that I know still has maybe a decade to go, still got some time where it can be profitable, but I can see the writing on the wall. It's not going to last. Do I use those resources and those assets that I've accrued to basically cannibalize my business and and try and go after like switch to the thing that that's actually competing with me, right? Switch to making cars if I'm making buggy whips or whatever it is, or seatbelts, you know, something to do with cars cannibalize my business, like help destroy my own industry because I can see that my own industry is going to be destroyed in in its current incarnation. Very few companies can do that. Very few large companies can do that. It almost never happens. It sometimes does, but it rarely, rarely happens. Usually they're too scared to change and they just keep going. They keep going and slowly and slowly they get a larger and larger share of a shrinking market. And eventually they disappear. And I think that's what you're seeing with the legacy media. And the smart ones, or I'll say the ones that are more adaptable, they do something like what Tim Poole did. Now, I recognize Tim Poole was young, so he wasn't part of the legacy media originally. But if you're a good journalist, you shouldn't worry. If you're actually a good investigative journalist, you shouldn't really worry about legacy media falling apart. Because you can turn into a Tim Pool. This is actually an opportunity for you. If you are a good journalist, this is a good opportunity. I'm sure Tim Pool is doing much better than hacks at the New York Times working for the man. This is your opportunity to go take your skills and all this expertise that you are asking us to believe you have and make something of yourself on your own, break away jump off of the dying ship that is the New York Times and become the next Tim Poole. It's very little startup capital. And if you actually are a good investigative journalist, go compete with James O'Keefe. You got a, a different narrative that you want to try and, and demonstrate or you want to get facts that are counter to James O'Keefe, go compete. But none of these people are doing that. Instead, what you're seeing is this desperate attempt to cling to their identity as being part of the noble journalistic profession. They wanna be part of, there was this badge that they wore around for decades. I'm from the press. They want that. They want that and they feel like their identity is being attacked. And this is how they respond. And to, to the rest of us, this article in the New York Times looks ridiculous. It looks like they have zero self-awareness. It looks like they are completely hypocritical. And they look desperate. They look pathetic and desperate. But they don't see that. They wouldn't put this article out if they thought that this article made them look pathetic and desperate. But they put it out because they know that more of this is going to happen. They know that there's there's going to be more revelations that these people are two-faced hypocrites who are playing one side of the game, that they can criticize someone for tweets from a decade ago as long as that person is not on their side. But if they're on their side, they stick by them and they defend them and they allow apologies to work. And they get, frankly, indignant. They're indignant that anyone would even point out that there was tweets that were bad in the past from that person. So regular people see this. The rest of us see this. But the New York Times I don't think there are I don't think they even have the self-awareness because what this is is a rallying the troops this article is not meant for it's not meant for people who don't already like the New York Times and are on their side this is them on their side trying to say hey guys don't abandon us we're being we're under attack we're the victims here we're the noble journalists who are victims from these evil people on the outside who are doing journalism but we use nasty words to describe it right they're on, they're on the other side. Therefore, everything they do is wrong. We're the victims. And it's sad and pathetic. So that's all I wanted to say today. Thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing. Please continue to do so. And please support us at Subscribestar if you can. Throw us a few shekels and help us keep the lights on here and improve the quality of our content and maybe even the frequency of our content. So thanks, everyone, for watching. Oh, one more thing, Carrie will chastise me if I do not remind you all of this. We are doing Book Club on September 15th, which is a Sunday in the evening. It's a chat, just like just like the last one. It's a video chat. So if you want to join, I think you have to sign up at Facebook on, on Unsafe Space Book Club. Our book this month is 1984 by George Orwell, and we'll be chatting on September 15th. So keep an eye out for that. Thanks for watching.